seated. Before Jen takes the kids out, I'd like to pray. Father God, we thank you so much that we can stand here uh, as free and redeemed people and sing about you and sing about your love for us, that you are a God who fights for us, that we are uh, never, ever left alone, that your watchful eye is always on us. So Father, uh, not only help the big kids in the room to remember that, that we are saved, we are free, we are redeemed, we are not alone, that we have a God who fights for us, but please press that into all of these little ones who are here. In a world that wants to just go against you in every single way, shape, and form, we ask that Jesus be a fence around our kids. Jesus be a fence around our children. Holy Spirit, be a fence around our children to protect them, help them to grow strong in you, protect them. Those who are here this morning, those who maybe aren't able to be here today, we ask that you please, please watch over and take care of them too. In the name of your son, amen. Oh, I love having the kids here. That's yeah, fun. I do love I'm it. doing the offering here in my thing, right? Whenever you want, just don't forget. I won't forget, okay. Um, <laughs> Okay, uh, offering team, you're going to take the offering after this first part uh, of the announcements. I'm doing announcements today, and I have a couple of important ones. I want to talk about two new team additions to the Grace Life team uh, and a little bit of what they're going to be doing. The first one um, is uh, I want to talk about our we're, – we're putting together a way, a plan to have – a global missions partnership with uh, Pastor Bruce Hedgepeth. Many of you know him from Church of the Palms, and he spoke a few weeks ago about his ministry in South America with Young Life. And so we're looking for a way to do that uh, as he do, and as he does those things with travel and all the discipleship and all those things. Over the next few months, he's going to look at uh, our ministry and help us figure out ways that uh, we can become more effective in shepherding the body of Christ around us. And so he has years and years and years and years and years of experience as a pastor. <laughs> and so we've asked if we could, we, we've asked if we could not only connect with him on a global missions partnership level, but also on a, on a local level, if he can help us have some insights to how to make Grace Life uh, be more effective in shepherding one another. The next uh, team member that we want to talk about is our newest staff person. Uh, she's actually not new anymore as a staff person. She's been staffed for a couple of months, but we were keeping it secret from you. No, we were waiting for everybody back from the summer so we could share with you what's going on with, with our, our um, community care coordinator and the Grace Life Food Pantry and things like that. So we have some pictures. You can start cycling through those, Kevin. So Lisa came to me about... Uh, year and a half, two years ago, and said, I would like to start this uh, food pantry, and I'd like to do it in the corner of the nightlife center. I said, no big deal. It won't take up much space. <laughs> a refrigerator, a shelf full of crackers. We're ready to roll, right? Two years later, she has over 25 to 30 people on her team on a rotating basis. She's feeding anywhere from 1,800 to 2,200 people a month. Uh, we're not talking about a meal. We're talking about meals for days where they give them boxes of food. Um, she has an incredible team. She has a full pantry with a commercial freezer and the biggest refrigerator I've ever seen in my life, loudest biggest refrigerator, full of food. Every time I walk into the nightlife center, there's a stack of food somewhere. <laughs> it's, it's amazing. This ministry has blown up. It's taken off. And it's become, frankly, our biggest outreach ministry uh, right next to Grace Life Recovery in our church. These are some of the things that our offering that we take each week goes to. Because we're mobile, we're organic, we're biblical and generous, we're able to do things with our money in a direct way uh, that other places may not be able to do. And Lisa was doing, as a volunteer, such an amazing, incredible job that her volunteer ministry was taking up like 30 hours, 40 hours a week. So I'll tell you what we're going to do. We're going to pay you $2 an hour. 
which is about what we're doing, right? But we said, you know what? You're putting in so much time. You're doing such an amazing job developing a team around you, which is, by the way, what organic ministry looks like. Uh, you have moved it twice, so you're mobile. <laughs> She's moved the ministry twice. She's definitely organic. <clears throat> She's definitely biblical. And there's no question the ministry that's happening with our community care is more than generous. It's, according to our vision, surprisingly generous. And so with that, I just want to welcome those two people to our team, Pastor Bruce Hedgepeth and Lisa Kay. Give them a hand and thank them for everything they do. So as I finish the, as I finish the announcement with the offering team, if they're still here, can come through and pick up the offering. Uh, now that you know what we do, you can give some more money to it. So, um, But by the way, yesterday the ladies had their annual uh, women's luncheon, and I hear it was a blast. And they're bragging a little bit because the guys haven't had one. So the guys have decided to go bowling on November 10th to try to compete with the women. So the guys are going on bowling on November 10th, but the women had an amazing time. It was good attend. What was that? The ninth. The ninth, November 9th or the 10th, either one, just show up. But the 9th is when people will be there. But the women had an amazing time yesterday. I was helping doing some set up and tear down. And my wife arranged it so that I'd be there before any of the women got there and then come after they're all gone because she didn't want me around, you know, because, you know, she just said, you know, you embarrass me sometimes. You just stay away. <laughs> but uh, when I got there, I saw these ladies working together, fellowshipping with one another, loving and caring for one another. There were some great pictures on social media that you can check out on our Grace, Li Grace Life Facebook page. It was an amazing time. A lot of cool things are happening uh, at Grace Life, and I hope you take advantage of some of those opportunities. Sunday morning is about one-fifth of what we do. We have huge ministries on Monday. We have uh, Deep End on Tuesday. We have a huge ministry on Thursday with Grace Life Food Pantry. Did you know we also, Grace Life partners with another uh, recovery group that meets on Saturday. It's just amazing what God is doing during the week uh, in our church. So let's talk about our next um, uh, message in this series called Surviving in Egypt, the Life of Joseph. For those of you that haven't been here, Egypt is a metaphor for the world. And what we've been doing is we've been going through with the life of Joseph, learning lessons from how we can survive in a world that is designed to tear us down. Survive in a world that is designed to rob us of our personal worth. Survive in a world that is designed to make things difficult, especially for people of faith. And this week's lesson or message is called Survival Through Diversity. Now, oddly enough, diversity, when you preach on it the correct way, it can be one of the most divisive messages in a church. Because let me tell you, in my experience as a pastor and as a church member and as a Christian, the hardest thing for a church to develop is diversity. It's the most elusive goal that is in every church vision statement. And many churches will talk about diversity, but let's be honest, we feel safer when everyone around us looks and sounds more like us. You can pretend like you're not, but it's true you are. We all are. And churches struggle with diversity primarily because internally we know that diversity is risky. It's uncomfortable. It's messy. And it's costly. We would never say out loud, we want our church to be white, middle to upper middle class with similar experiences. We would never say that. We don't have to say it. 
In fact, we may not even realize we don't like diversity. However, church staffing, budgets, programs, and behaviors say quite the opposite. Now, what we will do is we will tolerate diversity if its costs are managed, risks are defined beforehand, and we only experience more benefits from diversity than deficiencies. And that is because, for the most part, in the American church, we have allowed the gospel to become a narcissistic message. And we don't have the gospel as a worldview, as a guide to how we can interpret history and even our own experience. We are focused on the gospel being about our own personal salvation. We are focused on the right here, the right now, when survival in Egypt is so much bigger than just our own religious experience. With that in mind, let's talk about the passage today. As we do at Grace Life, we like to take each passage of Scripture and break it down historically. What about man? What does he do? And why and how did he do it? Then we look at the theology or the spiritual. What about God and what did he do? And then we look at the personal. What about me? What am I supposed to do? We have a big section of Scripture. We're not going to read it all today, but I'm going to break it down for you. So we'll start off about Jacob's will. Here's what Jacob does in chapters 48 and 49. He basically lays out his will to his kids. And the first thing we see in verses... Um, 1 through 14 of chapter 48, he has two new sons. And although Joseph wants his father Jacob to bless his two children, Ephraim and Manasseh, remember he was married to an Egyptian, to the daughter of an Egyptian priest, so he has children who are half Jewish by blood, but really they're pretty much all Egyptian. They've never stepped in foot in the land of Canaan, they've grown up in Egypt, they speak Egyptian. They read Egyptian, they look Egyptian, for the most part, they are Egyptian. And Joseph wants his father to bless his children, but it's unlikely he has any idea what his father is about to do. What Jacob does is fascinating in, verse four, in chapter 48. He ignores tradition and comfort in the birthright process, and he turns it all on his head because Jacob because of his experience with his own story of redemption, has begun to see the big picture of what the promises of Abraham, Isaac, and then transferred to him mean for the world. He adopts half-Jewish boys, Ephraim and Manasseh, Joseph's sons. He adopts them, makes them his own sons, not only blessing them, but he gives them equal status with his real sons. These two Egyptian-raised half-Jews now become critical to the future of the nation of Israel. That's the first thing we see historically speaking. Then something else happens in chapter 49, verses 1 through 27. He lists all the things that each son gets. Each son has talked the blessing they receive, and then the birthright or the inheritance or the land promise that each one receives. But there's very interestingly, glaringly, some of his sons are left out. See, the main prize with a birthright back in the day, was land. Land meant everything. It's how you provided, how you gained wealth, especially if you were a group of farmers and shepherds like the people of Jacob were. And Jacob's firstborn three sons, Reuben, Simeon, and Levi, 
now suffer because of their past choices and they lose their birthright. Reuben was an immoral fool. You can read about it on your own. He embarrassed his father with his immorality. Simeon and Levi were always fighting. They were warring people. And Jacob blesses them, but then he says, I'm not giving you the land. Instead, he takes the birthright of Simeon and Levi and Reuben, and he gives it to Joseph, who now has a double portion, his own birthright plus one of those other guys. And then he takes the other two and gives it to Joseph's half-breed sons. So Ephraim and Manasseh, Joseph's sons, replace Simeon and Levi, and Joseph gets his own birthright, his own land, plus Reuben's. I mean, why not? Shouldn't Joseph get two chunks of land? He did a pretty good job managing Egypt. He could probably handle two chunks of land. So the sons that were given land that make up the tribes of Israel, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, Joseph, times two, Ephraim, and Manasseh. Then I want you to see Jacob's worldview here with this. See, there's wisdom in leaving Reuben, Simeon, and Levi out of the land promise. It was actually long-term thinking shaped by his understanding of redemption. Don't lose sight of the fact that he has adopted half-Egyptian boys who've never been to Canaan and given them land. But he doesn't stop just there with turning this whole birthright thing on its ear. He also surprises by giving the blessing reserved for Joseph's oldest son to the youngest. It's in this passage in Genesis 48. <clears throat> and he blessed Joseph and said, the God before me, read this. This is what, this is, what is, it, is motivating Jacob's unusual actions. The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them let my name be carried on. In the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, let them grow up into a multitude in the midst of the earth. These half-Jewish boys, they are the ones to carry my name. Wow. Let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. You see that right there? Jacob knew that it wasn't just about the bloodline. We are part of that multitude. If you are a follower of Jesus. Continue on. And Joseph said to his father, No, not this way, father. Since this one is the firstborn, put your right hand on his head. So what had happened was, you know, Jacob's blind. And, and Joseph assumes as Jacob gets ready to put his hand of blessing, he puts his right hand on the younger son. He says, no, 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 God, uh, Jacob, you got it wrong. My oldest son is over here. But his father refused and said, no, I know, my son, I know what I'm doing. You kids, you think you know everything. <laughs> Your older son, he shall also become a people, and he shall also be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. Mm. Diversity. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you, Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God, make us, make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. And then we see the last part of this chapter. All these were the 12 tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them. He blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. 
They were custom-made blessings, custom-made inheritances, custom-made gifts and skills shaped who they were, what land they got, and the prayer that he said for them. Each one had his own special role in the nation of Israel. So now let's talk about the spiritual. What about God? What does he do and how does he, how does he do it? God has a much bigger plan than just to make a bunch of Jews. And see, what happens is Jacob is able to see well beyond Egypt, Egypt being the world. I mean, even Joseph wanted the tradition and the comfort, what was actually going to be most, the, the most predictable, best possible scenario, spiritually, financially, socially, for his family. But he did not see what Jacob saw. See, Jacob sees life through his experience and story of redemption he now has because of redemption. He says in the beginning of the passage, my God who's been with me from the beginning and the angel who has saved me from evil, bless these boys. He's saying all this, the God who has rescued me from my own decrepit, wretched sinfulness, please bless my adopted half Egyptian grandsons. He sees a picture that God's promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, when God said in Israel, all nations will be blessed, all nations will receive a blessing, he knew that it wasn't just his own blessing. He rejects pure Jewish sons, adopts half-Jewish sons, and makes their life experience being raised in Egypt part of the nation of Israel. It's a very un-Jewish thing to do. As a matter of fact, I love what Matthew Henry says about this. Among God's Israel, then, is to be found a great variety of dispositions, contrary to each other, yet all contributing to the beauty and strength of the body. And through this, let's look at it on a practical level. What God does, he actually gives Israel, in this diversity, strength to survive. Many years later, dark days would come in Egypt and beyond. God knew that for his chosen people to survive in Egypt and become a blessing to all the rest of the world, including us, they needed groups of people with diverse skills and focuses. Later, after being under tremendous persecution in Egypt, they leave Egypt. They would face even more diverse challenges from other nations wanting to wipe them out. Fast forward to the Holocaust where an evil Hitler killed them literally by the millions. Can I say that number again? The millions. Only a uniquely, sovereignly assembled people could survive physically, emotionally, and culturally, frankly, the greatest attempted genocide in human history. By the way, there have been at least three attempts of massive genocide on the Jewish people. Arguably, there's a fourth more than any other group of people in recorded human history. They are the most targeted ethnic group for genocide in human history, yet somehow they have survived. And you know why they've survived? Because it's not about them surviving this world. It goes beyond Israel. Jacob sees this big picture was a part of God's plan to diversify his chosen people to every ethnic group in the world. 
As a matter of fact, Paul lays this out in Galatians 3. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ Jesus have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you all are one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. See, I wasn't lying. You want a further explanation from Paul, who, by the way, said, I'm a Hebrew among Hebrews. Nobody has better Hebrew credentials than me. Look what he says in Colossians 3.11. Here there is not Greek, not Jew, not circumcised or uncircumcised. That means religious or unreligious. Barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. This is somehow what Jacob supernaturally understand, that my family is more than just Jews. We are to declare the promises of Abraham, Isaac, and myself, Jacob, to the world so that the world can be recipients of them, not just my kids. God's plan all along was to start with Israel and extend the promises of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to every group of people on the planet, making them one group called Christians. Church, this is the foundation of what we call covenant theology. Now, there's a lot more to it than that, but this is really what it rests on. All right, let's look at the personal. This is the part that some of you might get upset with me. Shocker, right? I want to talk about the gospel of diversity. So this was our social media campaign this week. Why do we tend to prefer a church where everyone is similar to us? Oh, we don't. Oh, yes, you do. Look around. See, this is the point. This is the purpose of the church. Not to feed into our insecurities about what surviving in Egypt looked like, but to help us grow far beyond those insecurities so that we can survive Egypt. The church, listen carefully, the church is not designed to be a fortress of cultural comfort and emotional safety, protecting us from the dangers of the world. Guess what? You are part of the dangers of the world around us. The church is supposed to be a movement that includes people from Egypt. All of us are at least half Egyptian anyway. But what happens is, is we have developed this, what I call, in other countries we have it too, but particularly in America, we have what I call narcissistic Christianity. We tend to embrace a church where everyone is just like us. We wouldn't want to admit it. But look around, team. This is the result of seeing the gospel. Listen carefully. This is going to be very important. You've got to understand this. This is a result of seeing the gospel only through the lens of personal salvation, your way out of Egypt. We make the gospel a narcissistic pursuit instead of a way to interpret all of life, past, present, and future. Yes, of course we have individual salvation. But the gospel is more than just our salvation, our way out of Egypt. It is a lens to view all of human history and all of culture. That's what Jacob was doing. But see, this is why we become selfish with church. 
People subconsciously or maybe consciously use attendance and giving to force churches to feed that selfishness. And if the church wants to grow, they better listen and follow suit. Now, like I said earlier, we will tolerate diversity if it's cost or managed. Risks are defined and we only experience its benefits. But this cycle causes inadvertently or sadly in some places, I don't think here at Grace Life, but sadly, it either causes inadvertently or sometimes intentionally others that don't look or sound like us to feel unwanted, unneeded, unimportant, and tolerated, not embraced. But listen, it's not just the church. Egypt, the world around us, does a great job singing kumbaya campfire songs about diversity. But Egypt is even worse than the church at diversity. Everyone champions diversity. All of us love diversity, 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 diversity. We are the world. That song was horrible. But most of us live life safely surrounded by people just like us, ethnically, financially, politically, socially, in neighborhoods we choose, selfishly, and probably we don't even realize that we're doing it. Let's be honest, humanly speaking, we are terrible at diversity and have been as a human race for thousands of years. In many respects, diversity has become a social media campaign, a bumper sticker, a shirt. This is a human nature issue. Just like our propensity for sin, we have a propensity for homogeneity. Look it up. That's a good word. I'm not going to define it here. I just want you to think that I'm smarter than you for just a few minutes. <laughs> but here's what the gospel gives us the opportunity for. Kingdom Christianity. Look at this verse in Revelation, chapter 7, verse 9 and 10. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Get in your head just for a moment, close your eyes, and envision the scene that John is writing about. And while you're thinking about that scene, Every tribe, every nation, before the Lamb, before His throne singing, salvation belongs to our God. Just like the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the gospel is the only true force for diversity in the world today. Every other type of diversity is temporal, motivated by guilt, The gospel is about surviving in Egypt to fulfill a calling to take the message of God's promise to every race, 
every nationality, every background, and every time, let me tell you something, and I truly believe this, yes, diversity is hard. That is why every time we are blessed with a measure of ethnic diversity, it's a miracle and is an absolute sovereign gift of the covenant keeper, God. That's why I love so much what Margie Kruger shared last week. Do you see that? She has a ministry to people who look or sound nothing like us. But what God is doing there is just as important to his plans for that moment in Revelation 7, 9, and 10 we just read about. What God is doing there is just as important to his plans as our comfortably run churches here in America. Church diversity is a part of our calling. Now, I want to talk a little bit about Grace Life's diversity. It's not going forward, Kevin. You can fix that for me. Um, oh, I'm missing some, missing some screens. All right, we'll just start. stay there. I want to talk about Grace Life's diversity. So ethnic diversity is certainly a huge part. We see that in Jacob's story, right, with these two half-Egyptian boys that he adopts and makes his own. Frankly, ethnic diversity is really hard, and in some places it's non-existent. Understandable. But let me tell you something. We have so far to go. We are not diverse enough. In fact, even in a church that's organic like Grace Life, we have unintentional tendencies that short-circuit our diversity. I mean, I, as the pastor, in my own life, I notice constant subconscious actions that short-circuit building a church filled with people not like me. So let's start with learning to embrace some of the incredible diversities in life experience, family, political ideology, cultural norms, etc., that we have been given at Grace Life, and there is a plethora of them. Another great word you need to look up, plethora. We have some uniquely diverse, uniquely diverse people at Grace Life that we can embrace, celebrate, and use as a starting point for us to learn what diversity really means. In our church, we have people from Wall Street and Main Street and the back alleys of Bradenton. I'm sorry, I had to get another Bradenton joke in there, all right? <laughs> we have people that can swing a hammer. We have people that write computer code. We have people that are good with money, and we have people that are good with people. We have salespeople. We have technical people. We have people who build houses. We have people who fix cars. We have people who drive cars. We have people who break cars. <laughs> We have people who play guitar. We have people who wait on tables. We have people who wash dishes. We have people who paint walls. We have people in recovery and people who aren't in recovery that should be. By the way, our church desperately needs broken people. I'm desperate for them. Because they remind us of the power of redemption and the gospel. We have people that love to pass out food to hungry people. And we have people that love to pay for that food that we pass out to hungry people. 
We have people in our church that absolutely love and adore kids that are in juvenile detention centers in our three counties. We have people that absolutely love and adore our church kids. We have people that love to do administrative work. Can you imagine that? That's ridiculous. Not me. <laughs> we have young people with lots of free time and no money. We have other people with lots of money and no time. We have some people with no money and no time, yet somehow they have time and energy to serve relentlessly in our church. Time after time after time. They're amazing. I don't know how they juggle it all. We have people that love to make policy like Dr. Jen Gillespie. We have people that love to break policy like your pastor. The fact is we need each and every one of these types of people if we are going to survive in Egypt and fulfill our calling. Even in our church, though, we separate ourselves by sides of the room. I'm sorry to go there and make you uncomfortable, but we do, and you know it, so let's just talk about it. One side having very little in common with the people on the other side. But yet what you realize, hopefully today, is you desperately need the people you don't know very much about on both sides of the room if we are going to be effective with the gospel. This side needs that side. That side needs this side desperately, or we're never going to make it. We need to begin treating, and this is important, we need to begin treating diversity just as precious and celebrative when we do have a good week of money offerings. They're both treasures and jewels. Because the gospel is not just for middle to upper middle class white people. It's for any and everyone God's grace blesses us with in our life. The reason that we are given the ability to survive in Egypt is not for our personal benefit. It is so that we can be part of taking the message of the promises of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, namely that promise being fulfilled in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need to be able to take that to every part of the world. But how about we just start with what we're doing now? Let's just make sure we take it to all the different parts of Sarasota. Heavenly Dad, we look at your pictures in Revelation of a diversified community worshiping at your throne. All nations, all tribes, all tongues, all cultures. Lord, help us to practice for that now. Help us to be mindful of maybe some subconscious ways where we shy away from diversity. And Lord, give us, and this is, this is going to have to be supernatural because we don't know how to do it on our own. Give us the ability to absolutely fall in love with diversity as much as we love our favorite food. Help us to recognize that we don't have a chance if we just think of surviving Egypt in our own personal narcissistic world, that you would expand our worldview and help us see that you have given us a story of redemption for one reason, so that we can be part of the tribes of the nation of Israel that take the gospel everywhere. And Lord, we do celebrate the diversity we do have in our church. God, we need more. I don't know what it'll look like, whether it's ethnic, geopolitical, social economic, life experiences, age. I don't know what the diversity will look like. But God, I pray that whatever it is by your sovereign grace that you gift us with, that we would be excited about it, that we would embrace it, that we would love it, that it would transform us. 
give us courage to be diverse.